Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Welcome back, friends. Today we've got another good one for you. This one is coming to you from Houston, Texas, where we recorded with Jonathan Martin, a name that you guys need to know. He is uh, recently, uh, well, he's going to tell you about where he is now. And Jonathan Martin's on the podcast, and then we've got a brief uh, 10 minutes or so with our old buddy, Ian Morgan Cron. So we're going to go Jonathan Martin and jump right in to Ian Cron, and you're going to enjoy that. And do you know what else you're going to enjoy? A little information that my daughters are going to tell you about. First of all, it is from my daughter, Adeline. What do you say, Adeline? ACU's graduate school of theology. Exactly. ACU's graduate school of theology. That's our sponsor this month. Now the graduate school of theology, it's not just a school. It's a community. ACU graduate school of theology is a community of learners and disciples curious about faith, history, and they're committed to becoming the hands and feet of Christ in our world. Oh, that's good. Now, the students of ACU's Graduate School of Theology have their hearts set on bringing life and redemption to a hurting world, and their mission is to equip these men and women for effective missional leadership in all its forms and to provide strong academic foundations for theological inquiry. Let me tell you something. Great school. It happens to be my alma mater, so I am personally a fan of ACU's Graduate School of Theology. I would highly encourage you to go check them out. The website, it's acu.edu. You can learn more there. If you can't remember the link, just go to our Facebook page, Newsworthy with Norsworthy, on Facebook, and there is a link to the Graduate School of Theology. So go check that out, and uh, go check out this great conversation that we have with Jonathan Martin. And we get a little awkward with Ian, but you know what? It just makes the conversation at the end that much better. So it's time. Let's go. Let's do it. All right, friends. Today we have uh, another guest from Praxis, Jonathan Martin. Welcome. Thanks, man. So good to be with you. Yeah, I've I've been excited to talk to you because you met Pentecostal Tim a little while ago, mm-hmm. and uh, so he's always introducing me to kind of your stream of Christianity. And I so see. first, it was Chris Green. Okay, that's and a great introduction to Pentecostalism, right well, there. Well, <laughs> I, I I hear he's the smartest Pentecostal there is. That's yes, the, that's the rumor yes. on the streets. He really is. I, I I believe that he's one of my best friends, and I would absolutely claim him to be the smartest Pentecostal. Well, I was alive. introduced to him because he's. Uh, I guess he spoke at your old church. Yes, he did. Re- Renovatus. You just said it, and I yep, still can't. Yeah, you said pre- it perfectly. I did. Mm-hmm. Yes, ACU <laughs> education paying off. <laughs> and so, uh, and then I started listening to your stuff. I was like, dude, you're good, man. Mm. And so, like, the joke is. I, I typed out, you know, World's uh, Source Pentecostals, a title of podcast I did with him. And, and someone on, on uh, Twitter is like, is he saying Pentecostals aren't very smart? I was like, I'm making a joke right now. I'm not serious. Right. I really don't think. And you, uh, Duke, is where you did uh, some education, right? Yeah, I did uh, I, I did my first master's degree at the Pentecostal Theological Seminary where Chris, Chris teaches. Is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, that was before his time there. But then and I went to Duke to do a THM to do a second master's. And why wouldn't yeah. you just go get, go get a second one at Duke? Why not? Well, you know, you know, for me, what was really cool about that is that um, the approach of the Pentecostal Seminary is so Wesleyan. And then Duke being a Methodist seminary, I really wanted to explore 
a lot of those connections via Wesley to other parts of Christian tradition from my yeah. own heritage. So, you know, believe it or not, I felt like Duke, Duke actually really helped me understand my own tradition better because I felt like I was able to mine into those roots. Really? Yeah. Uh, so what, what things about your tradition did you appreciate more after being there or were you, you more drawn to? Well, I think one of the biggest changes is that like when I was um, growing up, I would have always understood Pentecostalism to be essentially Protestant or kind of a, you know, a subset of evangelicalism in some ways. Yeah. And one of the most surprising discoveries that really, you know, turned around how I thought about my whole tradition is just finding these ways that at least for me, I find Pentecostal tradition to many ways be more essentially Catholic than it is Protestant. Really? And I think Wesley is kind of the person who mediates that because even though he wasn't Catholic, he was essentially such a Catholic thinker. So like when you start mining some of those roots, you know, that was one of the biggest surprises for me. So, you know, there were just a lot of things where I came to see my own tradition differently, especially kind of understanding historical roots. Because admittedly now I think like the vision I have of being Pentecostal is so different. The version I got growing up was largely um, fundamentalism with speaking in tongues tacked on the end. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the vision of the Pente- the broader Pentecost tradition that I have now is 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 really something that I probably didn't step into until sometime in my twenties. Like it wasn't really? the church that I feel like I grew up with in yeah. the southeast. That makes sense. I grew up Churches of Christ, and so my experience was like fundamentalism plus acapella singing. Oh wow! And, yeah. and so yeah. in lives, there's a lot of commonality to that. Sure, sure. And uh, that since obviously evolved and grown, and and going to to seminary was influential with me. And part of it was also seeing other traditions and other fellowships and what they brought mm-hmm. to the table and where they were weak. And one of the things that you just said uh, on stage at your uh, the TED Talk style, or, yes, right. do you call it a sermon or whatever? I don't what, know. Whatever you want to call whatever, it. <laughs> whatever it was, it was good. But you talked about that. the uh, the benefit of claiming your tradition, yeah. which not a whole lot of people want to do. Sure. And the church that I started, we didn't have like a brand name on it mm-hmm. as a way to say, oh, we're not connected to some church. Mm-hmm. And every time I've said that to someone, they're like, oh, it's not a denomination. Oh, that's cool. That's mm-hmm. cool. I don't know if you had that experience at your church. I did. But you said we need to claim a tradition because it makes us own up to the sins that often we're running from by taking the label off. And I thought that was fascinating. Mm. Did you find that that was something that as you you planted your church, it didn't have a brand slogan on it? It didn't have a – did you – is that something you would have done different? Well, you know, my thing was for me – you know, we didn't have – we were a Church of God Cleveland, Tennessee congregation, and we didn't have that – in the title, but I mean, we were open that that was the affiliation. And I just think it's, you know, I don't know if I would necessarily do that differently because it's like, you know, I didn't feel like it was necessarily so important to, uh, I mean, I don't care about so much having the badge on the lapel or whatever, but just for me, I think some of it was more about posture than anything because, you know, we all have that experience um, I think spiritual growth, like any other kind of growth, you go through a sort of stormy adolescence where, you start pushing back on your parents and raising questions yeah. and having arguments. And at that point it's like, you know, you want to do the whole, like, you're not my mom and dad. <laughs> you're stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go do my own thing. Yeah. And I don't think there's any, even anything wrong with that. Like, I think that's a necessary phase of development. Like, I think it's important to have that kind of lover's quarrel with your own tradition. But I think when you come to the other side of that, like, I, th- I think it's important to kind of reconcile with those roots. And of course, sometimes people feel led out of a tradition. That's okay. I just think, you know, we all do find ourselves in a tradition somewhere. I mean, actually, um, after I left for Novatus, um a little over a year ago, uh, kind of in this long in-between season for me with a lot of soul-searching and all that, I actually attended 
an Episcopal church for a year, yeah. which so deepened my sort of liturgical side. But Why I would did, still self-identify as a Pentecostal. But you're just an Epi- Episcopalian church. Right, yeah. What, I feel what, like I, you know, I needed that experience. What made you go there instead of another Pentecostal church or heaven for you go to Church of Christ so that you definitely get into heaven? Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I mean, what made you go to an Episcopalian? You know what? It's actually a really simple answer is that it, by the time, by that point in my life, my theology had become so Eucharistic and so we're in around the table. And I wanted to go to a place where um, I, I would be able to come to the Lord's table weekly. But like within my Pentecostal tradition, I've been so shaped uh, so so prominently by women in ministry. And so I'm fairly uncomfortable with the idea of being part of a church where women would not be able to serve the elements. So if you're looking for a weekly table, um, but you want to be in a place where women can serve, the list of eligible churches gets very small. There's not a whole <laughs> you know, lot. There's not. What, okay, so, so what made those two be the central things that, that are the determining factor for you? Because it seems like there's probably a bunch of other things that are really important to yeah, you. Yeah, there are. But those two were, were paramount. Well, I think it was more a sense of like, because I am such a product of my tradition, like, you know, my father's a Pentecostal minister. My grandfather really? was too. Oh, wow. And so I just kind of felt like the more I'd moved into the liturgical Eucharistic stuff that was forming my soul— I was growing in it, but I still didn't know what I was doing. I mean, like at Renovatus, everything we did liturgically was so experimental because I'd never really been part of a church that had those practices. So it seemed like, especially because it was a, such a turbulent time in my life personally, I feel like I needed the anchored, the kind of the, the anchor-centered place. And I didn't think there was any other 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 way, way I could get it. I mean, for me, it wasn't like I'm abandoning my tradition. It was more like I think in this season you have to I need have more of this. You know, it's crazy. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in Laguna Beach mm. and talking with Rob Bell, and he oh, yeah. had this amazing riff. He went on. It was probably like 20 minutes about how he thinks what can save the evangelical church yeah. is stop protesting, stop trying to get 10, 12 points. Everyone agrees on. Yeah. Get rid of the argument and stuff. Everyone just go to the table. Here's. Yes bread and wine and that's going to be what holds people together absolutely yeah it was so good Mm. you're gonna say oh no no no. i'm just falling over myself agreeing here because i'm so passionate about this idea that i think the only hope for christian unity is around the table like it's even when people have very different conceptions of how it works or what's happening around the table i still think at the end of the day it's roughly the only practice that all christians have more or less in common and I think just in terms of coming to any sort of reconciliation, any hope for visible unity, mm-hmm. if there, if it's going to happen at all, it would happen around around, around the, the table. table. Where did where did that come into your life? Because obviously, it wasn't that your tradition right. growing up? What what brought the Eucharist to to being such a central part? Well, um, it started off really academically for me, and through a lot of my study about church history. But particularly, I think the thing that nudged me most was. I was starting to become so directly shaped by Wesley. I mean, I, in my tradition, I think I was indirectly shaped by Wesley, but never really studied you know, the origins of the Pentecostal movement. So the more I came to understand Wesley and how important Eucharist was to him. I mean, we, you know, Wesley always admonished his preachers to serve the elements every week. And he himself, his personal counsel was to take it every day. And he, I, I think essentially most of his life, took communion every day. And so the more I kind of came to that via Wesley and, you know, I I think in my mind, I grew up in Pentecostal churches where we, we probably didn't come to the table more than twice a year. And it was understood in fundamentally Baptistic terms. I mean, it was, everything was very symbolic. I mean, there was no Mm. sense at all that there's some kind of mysterious transaction through that experience. And I feel like Wesley started giving me the resources to like come to understand what happens at the table in a more powerful way Mm -hmm. um, to understand, you know, to, to see it as, as, 
more than uh, some kind of an empty symbol. And, you know, I think with that, when you already have that baseline sort of Pentecostal mysticism yeah. and this idea of the power and presence of the Spirit, like, why not believe? That, wh- why should we, of all people, not believe that there's something transcendent that happens? Yeah. It, it would seem like through the tradition, we'd have unique resources to really claim yeah, you that. Should jump all over that. Yeah. So you said he, he, he would take it every day. Yeah. Is that something that you, during a season of your life, that you thought about doing or that you experimented with? You know, not daily because, and I still don't know the mechanics of, you know, what's the best way to sort of serve <laughs> yeah. yourself in that yeah, regard. Yeah. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> I was, I'm curious. But I was like, you know, what I would do, though, is that I found many weeks, like, I, I, I found myself often wanting to go to, at the church I was attending, they would do like a Tuesday, Thursday, uh, lunchtime kind of Eucharist. We're often... I mean, there was never going to be more than three or four people there. So you're basically serving yourself anyway. Uh, well, cl- close <laughs> enough. It's like, you know, the priest and just like there's a couple of us. But I, I found myself some weeks um, just really feeling like I couldn't wait another week to get to the table because I felt like I was at such a vulnerable place that I just I, I needed that as, mu- as much as possible. So it wasn't like it wasn't pious. It certainly wasn't some sense of like. God will like me better or whatever. It truly was like this idea that for me, there's so, so much healing in that act. Really? Yeah. So like a place of desperation, you want to go yes. to the table. What was the cathartic thing about the table for you in that, that season? I think the fact that my own understanding of the Eucharist is that it's, it's, it's not just about Christ's brokenness. It's about our own. Like it's always we're able to bring our own brokenness and somehow through the wounds of Christ, um, there's grace and healing poured into all of our own broken places. So I think for me, just that connection was so viable of I'm a very broken person, very much in need of Christ's grace. Mm. It's very tangible, tasteable, physical here. Um, I, I tend in general to be a person who gets really lost in my head. And I found like oftentimes like this practice, it was like, it was so, so tactile. Yeah. You know, this is a, this is a tangible way that I can receive grace right now when I can't think my way out, pray my way out intellectualize my way out it just i needed something that was more concrete than any of that and there's nothing more concrete than eating and drinking something. right i mean what really is i mean that's just a basic human experience yes. you gotta eat you gotta drink and yes somehow god shows up in that absolutely which i think that's what you're talking about before like as someone from your tradition you should have the ability to have this mystical understanding right. that it's not did it happen no it's just this is the body of christ yeah and some of that shows up do you think uh, going forward you could uh, go to a church that doesn't take table time every Sunday that doesn't go to the Eucharist? No, I really don't. You know, it's funny how crisp that answer is. It's like, a, no, no, you know, I, I, I just, I, I don't think I could, it's become too important for me. And that does, certainly doesn't come from a place of judgment. Like if churches no, don't no. do it, like it's, it's not like that. I just think for me, it's become so essential that now I really do understand it as the reason why Christians gather. Of course, there are other things that happen that are important. And I do think there's, you know, kind of an evangelistic function to the gathering. And there is teaching instruction. I think all that matters. Mm -hmm. But I think that the, the table really is the main event. And that also was one of the things good for me about attending an Episcopal church is that I'm a long-winded Pentecostal preacher where typically my own sermons would be like an hour. So for me, like when you come in and like the, the, the sermon would never be more than 12 or 13 minutes. And, and it comes so early in the format that there's always this sense that this is part of the ramping up. This is, this is part of the preparation yeah, for yeah, coming yeah. to the table. And I feel like I just like I needed my own perspective to be that reoriented so that like instead of 
kind of falling into the same thing that I feel like I'd always done of being, you know, really being captivated by a particular personality or presence. Like I needed Christ to, to feed Be me. That presence, yeah. and, and I think that, you know, it, that, that's just shaped me a lot. Not that I never preach long sermons, <laughs> but I do find these days my preaching has become more shorter, yeah. uh, more shorter, shorter <laughs> as a result. Uh, you can tell I've just got done preaching no, you're good, as you're a good. result of experience yeah. because, you know, it's like that was so shaped. You all know, that. I think Ian said this one time, uh, Ian Cron, who was also at the conference. And if it wasn't him, I'm just going to blame it on him anyway. But he was talking to uh, someone from our, our tradition that he preaches longer sermons. Mm. And he says, you know, you guys have to preach so long. And he says, you know, one of the good things about what we do is the gospel is preached every Sunday at the table. Yes, and so yes. you don't feel the pressure right. that you have to go longer than 12 minutes because the message is being communicated at the table. Yes, it takes it takes so much pressure off. Uh, because the the gospel's being proclaimed through what you do. And I also think it just, if you really believe that God meets with people through that experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me as a Pentecostal, I think it also takes a lot of pressure off in terms of I need to make sure God shows up. I need to make sure I facilitate sometimes. I mean, you know, you want to set up that time well, but I think if you really understand, like, if, if, if the weight lands here on this practice, this is where we believe God really meets people in their own broken places, then now everything's just not riding on the preaching experience yeah. to be that determinative for everything. And that's, as a preacher, like, that's your life. Every every week it's like, okay, what am I going to say right. on Sunday? And it becomes this rhythm. And when that's you have right. all the obligation, the pressure, it's, that's like, that's the center of your life. That's and right. Y- you've been out of, like, your church for a year-ish mm-hmm. or so? Yeah. And has that been weird for you? Like, you've taken one of, the, like, the most, like, normative parts of your routine mm-hmm. away. Obviously, you have been preaching, but not every sure, Sunday. Sure, Has that been weird for you? Weird. Completely weird. I mean, if there's ever been a person who um, identifies with gifts and preaching, I mean, that's me. It was very much my life was Sunday to Sunday, sermon to sermon. Now, full disclosure, and I debate about this because I'm thinking about when your podcast comes out, but I don't think it matters at this point. I'm actually, because this is not super public yet. I've but been, I was told to try to get this out of you. Okay, yes, I don't <laughs> mind saying. So I, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm planning to move to Tulsa very soon to go on staff with my friend Ed Gunger. I feel like is I it, should cheer or clap yeah, or something. Yeah, thank you for, thank you they, for that. Someone else, you said, hey, Maybe this will be the announcement. I don't this know. This is it. Yeah, we'll, we'll put out the first <laughs> so, next month. Yes. So, uh, no, yeah, I, I heard that. And so you're yeah. going to be back to the regular routine of preaching. That's right. So back on, on staff with Ed and, and Sanctuary Church there in, uh, in Tulsa. They are very liturgical. I mean, there's a lot of room for spirit and expression, but it is very much order around the table. But just so that's where I'm moving back into. But not sidestep your question. Um, it was it was disruptive for me in the best way. I think to not have that to cling to in the ways that I was. And and, and I will say, while it felt like it was kind of um, I don't know pulling the plug on the life support in a way to not ha- have that every week. I also think even at the time. I never missed that or resented it because it was like, I think I just, it just felt so good and healthy. I mean, I, I've been in full-time ministry since I was 22. I mean, as soon as yeah. I got out of college. So for the first time in my adult life to be able to go to church, sit, listen, receive, be on the other side of receiving the elements and all that, man, it was wonderful. So it was so life-giving that even where I felt like there were times that like my ego was um, being choked out a little bit or 
you know, j- just missing the the adrenaline high because that's what it's like. You know, yeah. preaching for me, super super high adrenaline. So I, I learned to live for the fix. Have a horrible crash Monday and Tuesday. Start to engage humanity. But through Wednesday. Tuesday, yeah. So you crash through Tuesday. Oh my gosh! I mean, I would do stuff, but I'd be miserable. Really? And then Wednesday start climbing all over again, and Hold it's up. like that was so. You I've know. heard of people like battle Monday. Like I'm pretty drained. Yeah. Sunday night I'm terrible. Monday I'm starting to come back around, but never on Tuesday. Well, part of it though is uh, I think it's it it's me embodying some of the weirdness of my tradition. Is that you know I think I did often approach preaching, and I still do a little bit because that's just my roots in me. But, you know, for Pentecostals, it's so often like this. Stepping into the pulpit is Clark Kent going into the phone booth. It's like, you know, bam. And so you said there. And I for me, it's like it felt like there was such a full hearted, full bodied, like stepping into this thing. There was a lot of emotional intensity. And I think doing attempting at least to do it in a vulnerable way yeah. would leave me really spin and exposed. There was kind of a vulnerability hangover in that well, too. I'd listened, I've listened to your sermons and I'm super impressed. I mean, you're very gifted, very talented. You, I can tell what you're saying is, is real. Like you really oh, put your heart into gracious. it. And, and I, and I mean that to, uh, to tell you, I, I just, I'm glad you're preaching again, but I can imagine mm-hmm. why that is so draining Yeah. because I mean, it's not just, you're not just ripping off some words, but this right. is your heart that you're worn out. And I wonder, like, as you're not having the responsibility of, of coming up with that every Sunday mm. or the gift of it. I've had multiple people. Uh, did you read Lauren Winter's new book? That, yes, I did. Yeah, so I talked yeah. to Lauren, and I, and I made a comment about, you know, you have to get up and preach. She's like, don't say you have to. So mm. you get to. I'm like, sorry, mm. Dr. Winter, my bad. But, <laughs> so you, but even though it's a gift that you get to do it, right. it's still, it's draining. Yes. And I'm assuming when you're not having to prepare you're not like reading the scripture the same. You're not praying mm-hmm. the same. You're not reading books like Lord Winter's book. Right. The same. Is that, was that true? Was that your experience? Yeah, it was. And you know, I think there were even times where for me, um, that wasn't even entirely replaced. So it wasn't like, since I'm not doing it now, I have this thriving devotional, whatever, but in an odd way, I think for the season, even that was often good for me because it was like, there was such an emphasis on just being, and it's like, there, there's no, instead of always feeling the need to sort of strain and strive, it would be like, you know, sometimes I would pray more than others. I was always kind of reading, studying, but it wasn't at the intensity that I was at before. I think in many ways, the intensity at which I would often do that was not super healthy. You know, it it was too driven. It was a little bit too like, you know, again, life is oriented around preaching. So it, it became much more simple. And if sometimes that meant that my devotional life was a little bit more, uh, scarce for some parts of that. Often it meant I felt like I was making myself available to the presence of God in other ways that no. were minimized before. I, I no. need to be outside more. I need to hike more. All those things, of course, I don't think are replacements, but I think for me, I needed a little bit of a correction to like this crazy person stack up. I mean, I, I'd, it was so common for me that, and I don't say this like bragging but i mean it would not be an un- unusual if i was in really in that gear that i might rip through three or four books in a week you know working on a sermon or a series yeah. or something and i just think a lot of that was you know it, it, that, that wasn't a, a god-centered obsession really you know that's about getting the sermon perfect do you think you're going to be able to maintain a healthier routine as you're getting back into weekly preaching or do you think it's going to creep back up on you that's a great question i i hope it will be healthier what i do find in general now is that I don't, the whole experience doesn't have nearly the weight that it used to in ways I think they're good. I just Mm. think it's like taking a step back as much as I think preaching is valuable and is a great gift to be able to do it. Just 
understanding I'm not as important as I thought that I was. I'm mm. not as central. So it's like, you know, the weight of the world no longer rests on my shoulders in it. So, I mean, when I'm preaching, of course I hope it really connects with people and I hope they encounter God. And, uh, of course, I'm human enough that I'll, it'll be great if somebody enjoys it and they say they appreciate it. And of course, that's going to be encouraging. But I just don't feel like the high for it is not as high as it used to be for me. But the lows aren't quite as low either wow. because I think it's like the, the stakes just aren't the same. I'm, yeah. I feel free to be m a little more insignificant than I was before. That's great. We're going to have to talk again after you've been preaching again for six months or yes, months. See, <laughs> we want to see if you're really practicing what you're preaching. Right Once here. I've been in the lab and been experimented on a bit. <laughs> yeah, right, I'll, yes. I'll, yeah, I'll hit you up and you'll have like 14 books in your desk. And right. Like, uh, yeah. Losing <laughs> my mind. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. don't, don't you have a book that's going to come out sometime this year? Yeah. You know, uh, it may at this point be next, next year. <laughs> we're working on all that. But um, yeah. I don't think I can talk about this because we're fine. just now finalizing the contract. But um, I am. No, no, no. Don't, I, no I don't mind saying this. Okay. I mean, it's like I'm really just in the process of finalizing a book deal okay. um, for, for two books that I'm really excited about. And so it looks like now this one's going to come out in 2016, which I think is good because this one for me is such a, it, I don't know, it, it's so heartfelt. I want to get it right. I'm definitely going to have the manuscript done by beginning of August. So okay. I'm in the throes of doing that right gotcha. now. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right on. Well, we'll have to have you back on also when that book comes out. Oh, that'd be fun. We'll talk I'd love about that. it. So uh, thanks for your time. Absolutely. Oh, this has been a pleasure. Really yeah, honored right to be here. Well, uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you. All right, friends. We have returning to the show Ian Morgan Cron. Ian, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great, thanks. Did you like that introduction? I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was very professionally done. You think so? Yeah. I've, I feel like this is very professional. Good, yeah. You, you've been on, this is your third time. The very first time we had met in Nashville, because you came to our preacher camp. Right. And you were forced to do the podcast pretty much, because Gray said, hey, this is my friend, you have to come on. Right. <laughs> and now, I'm forcing you again. Here we are. It, now, I think I told you this already, but uh, I recently stayed at uh, a condo on the beach for four days, uh, and lovely people didn't charge me. And so I gave them two copies, or a, a copy of Chasing Francis oh. and Jesus, My Father, and the... Wait, is that right? Jesus, My Father, and the CIA? Uh -huh, and me. And me. Yeah, you were included. And so the way I calculate that is your books are worth two days at the beach each. Wow. That's good. It's great. If I give you a case, you get a, maybe a week in Paris. Dude, that's great. Let's work on that. Yeah. Let's work on that. Okay, so uh, we're down here at Praxis. You've been here all day. You've got, done multiple talks. Yeah. You're exhausted. Uh, I'm not exhausted. I'm tired, but not, not exhausted. You've been traveling all over. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me tell you what I like about Ian Morgan Cron. I've thought about this. <laughs> I've thought, what is the thing about Go on. Ian, Ian Morgan Cron <laughs> that I like? Okay, and so what hit me tonight, you're talking... False self, you love Merton stuff. Merton's your guy. Yeah, definitely Fra one of them. Francis is your other. Mm -hmm. Francis is big. Who else is in there? Oh, gosh. Mm. I have a pantheon of Luke Norsworthy, of course. Luke Norsworthy. Uh -huh. Rowan Williams would be one. Yeah. Would be huge. Can I, can I ask you a favor? We're going to need to get a little closer to that microphone. I'll, I'll scoot the table your direction. Okay. There you go. All right. Okay, so Rowan Williams is in there? Yeah, Rowan Williams is... Kind of a hero. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say, uh, yeah, I have so many. You got a lot. You got a lot. Yeah, I got a lot. And and one of your like sweet spots is false self stuff. 
Okay. Don't you think? I mean, you, that's. I've heard you talk about it a few times. Yeah, true self and false self. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's Merton. That's definitely Merton. It's so if you like Merton, you're going to talk about that. Yeah, it's kind of a hard. It's hard to avoid that topic with him. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of one of his top ten. Yeah. Okay. So that like that's that's you. That's a good spot for you. Mm-hmm. You talk about that well, and the reason I think I like it is because you put a pound of flesh on the table. You tell your own story. You deal with your own junk in a way that invites us to do the same thing. Hmm. Do you feel like you're intentionally choosing to be that confessional in your work? Obviously, you've written a book that tells your own story and some of your rough parts. Mm-hmm. Do, is that a conscious choice, or do you think there's that's just how ministry is done? That's how a, a writer writes and a speaker speaks? Well, I mean, I, I, I think I've always done that. Yeah. Um, I hope that it's never manipulative, you know, for the sake of, you know, getting an emotional rise from, from people by sharing deeply out of my own life. I can usually smell it when a writer or a speaker is doing that. Really? Yeah. You can kind of just feel it not landing very deeply, you know. Um, and uh, so I try to share honestly and out of my own life. I don't. I never feel particularly embarrassed or ashamed of anything that I say about my own human experience and in part because I don't think I say anything that everyone else is experiencing at some level. Yeah. So I, I always just feel like, well, let's just name the anxiety in the room, right? Like yeah. We all have false selves. We all have but you use, crazy stuff going you on. You use your false self as a way to paint a picture where everyone else can say, I see mine in that painting too. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's just what you want to do as a storyteller or a writer is create that kind of, you know, mirror or mural in which people can identify their own story in the midst of what you're talking about. Yeah. And it works. I mean, it does. That's that's your stuff. It makes sense. And uh, and I appreciate you doing that. I mean, because not everyone... Where are we going, Luke? Well, I've, you I've, look so terrified. You're looking at me like... I'm not terrified. You think I look terrified? Oh, go ahead. You know, the last guest said that uh, I was handsome. Who was that? Science Mike. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. This is so bad. No. Huh. He's does, got, someone, does someone need to talk to Mike about that? Or? I don't know. I feel like it's just a... It's just a, it's facts. It's yeah, science. That's right. It's <laughs> biology. I mean, it's those are nice cheekbones on that guy. I don't know. I don't think so. Okay, so the go the go to thing that I always bring up when it comes to Ian Cron's work is also not just your ability to put the pound of flesh on the table by telling your own story. It's Catholic imagination stuff. Right. Today you said sacramental Catholic synonyms. Pretty. Yeah. Oh, uh, in that in that respect, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and so I've listened to your work, and the first time I ever heard your stuff, we did a Eucharist service, Eucharist event thing, mm-hmm. whatever, and afterwards there was leftover bread. Mm-hmm. So you know what you told us to do? Mm-hmm. What did you do? Uh, I've just invited everyone to take the remaining consecrated bread and <clears throat> go outside and break it up and scatter it. And we were, at that time, we were near a wooded area, mm-hmm. but someplace where people wouldn't st- you know, there would be no possibility of people treading on it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that way we get to share Eucharist with all of creation. You so know? You're, you're channeling St. Francis. 
Isn't that one of his? Well, I guess, yeah. But, you know, <clears throat> it really makes sense, right? Like if, if all of creation is waiting in anticipation, mm-hmm. then, then I think Eucharist can be shared more broadly than just by human beings. That we should, it's a wonderful way for us to reconnect with the earth and to have compassion and empathy with the creatures of the earth. And yeah. It makes complete sense to me that, that that's what you would do with the bread. You know, did I ever tell you by the time I went to the church and they, they threw the bread out? Did I ever tell you No, we, we in Churches of Christ had our kids eat it. So there weren't ways that the kids would just scurry to the back and eat it. We didn't throw it. Well, them. I think that's right. But, but the, I, was, I, I, got, I asked by a Bible church to do a Eucharist. I, don't, I, could not, I couldn't understand why on earth they wanted me to. It just was not the kind of church that, you know, would, would normally invite me to do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I went and I did it. It was fine. It was for, actually for a conference at the Bible church. Okay. And uh, so afterwards, I was out in the room and I look up. Look back up on the stage uh, where the table was, and all the bread was gone. Now, there had been lots of loaves left over. So I turned to the guy that invited me, and I said, so where's the bread? He goes, oh, I don't know. I guess we just threw it out. And I was like, I didn't want to make him feel bad, but I, so I, didn't, I didn't blink. I just said, oh, uh, but where? Because it's consecrated bread. I, you know, I, you're not supposed to throw it away. So I went to the back of the church and with him, and there's a dumpster. Well, now there's a little bit of a crowd, right? There's like five or six people, because everyone's kind of <laughs> feeling bad that, you know, they threw the priest's bread away, they didn't know, and that, you know. And I'm like, no, no, it's no big deal. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, oh my God, they just chucked Jesus in the dumpster. <laughs> so I went in, I literally had to go into the dumpster. You really crawled in? Yeah. And you were and dressed up? No, I just, no, I was, you know, I never get like a collar on or anything yeah, like that, yeah. but, but. I'm standing in about six inches of like this gray sludge water at the Ah. bottom of a big dumpster. And I'm pulling out these loaves, these big round loaves of bread. And I realized in the middle of it that this was the best illustration of the incarnation I had ever experienced in my life. Like I was like, suddenly I'm in there thinking, God, what am I doing? This is stupid. I can't believe these people. And then I kind of went, what? Like the light went on over my head. I was like, this is the incarnation. Jesus is in the garbage. I'm pulling. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like, wow. like all this bread is so floating good. around in this sludge, and I'm thinking, it's the incarnation. That is it's like the best part of my day right now. I mean, wow! Here I am with Jesus in the in the dumpster. But okay, that's a, that's a brilliant story. If you have that lens to see the world through, whereas the like the Protestant way of seeing things is it's just bread. And, okay, in the service, it was something special, maybe, or it was just in remembrance. But now it's just bread, and so you can discard it. But, like, that's what your work has done for me. It started to kind of open my eyes to say, as you call, like, this Catholic way of seeing the world in which God is in everything. And, like, this enchanted way of seeing the world. And so, I, this is kind of, like, fanboy of of me here. But I did an interview with uh, N.T. Wright back in uh, January. And so we go in the room, and it's me and my buddy Jonathan Storm. And you know Jonathan. You were at mm-hmm. his church island. And uh, Tom, Bishop Tom, pours a glass of water for, for me, and he sits down. And then we do the interview, and the, the glass of water is still there. And so he, he leaves the room. I'm there by myself. And I drink the water, and I really – I don't know if it was just I went crazy. I was exhausted, or I had a lot of anxiety or what. But I really felt like I was, I was drinking the wine by that cup of water. Like I felt like there was something – 
more than just water in it. And part of me thought I was crazy, and then part of me thought, I'm getting what you're putting down. And so I tell this to Richard Rohr a couple weeks ago, which if you're keeping track at home, that's a double name drop I just did right there. And I told him that story, and he goes, oh, that is so sweet. That's, that's beautiful. And I feel like that's kind of the way of seeing things that you see God infused in everything, and it's just not natural for people like me who want to throw the bread away after the service is over. Hmm. Yeah, I, and I wouldn't necessarily, I mean, Richard obviously is a Catholic, but I, I would say that, um, you know, it, it's really a sacramental view of the world it, it, where you understand that, that everything is uh, infused or is brimming with uh, the glory of God somehow. Yeah. And so, you know, you... Uh, when you see the world that way, it changes everything. Yeah. But it, but for those of us who grew up in liturgical or Catholic traditions or Orthodox traditions, it comes more naturally. Yeah. And I think there are some temperaments that receive it more naturally. Poets, you could be an atheist and a poet, but still have a very sacramental imagination. Yeah. How can you write about you know um, um, the types of things that that poets treat without having that eye? That way of seeing multiple layers of meaning underneath the surface of things, to see the inner splendor of something. Yeah. That is to see its sacramental nature, that it's not, and, and to see that everything is analog. So, you know, everything is an analogy pointing towards some truth about who God is, right? Mm -hmm. So if I see a tree, uh, I can make. If I were to sit and meditate or contemplate on the tree for a while, I'm just sort of naturally inclined to begin to see how that tree serves as an analogy, as, as an analogy or a, as a metaphor for some dimension of God's character, for some bigger universal truth to be applied. Mm -hmm. so that, it's not just a tree now. Yeah. Now it's an expression of God in the world that is communicating truth about who God is and the nature of the world. That's that's so much more beautiful way to experience life. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the birthright that every person has. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. All right, I know I gotta let you go. Um, you gotta go. You've got uh, you did your first conference two day little thing. What I don't know what the name is. You gave to it, but in the end of February, <laughs> yeah, a couple of my buddies went to it and said it was outstanding. Yeah, we had a ball. We just had a group of. I don't know how many people, 20, 25 people come to, we spent a little bit of time in Connecticut and then half the time in New York City in mm -hmm. St. John the Divine. And we just took on a variety of subjects together. Um, you know, I like I like doing things like this. It's, they're fine. You know, you get up like this thing, this conference, I get 18 minutes, you know, which is like difficult. You, you know? need more than 18 minutes. I mean, you need it's, hours. It's, well, I mean, it's difficult, right? Yeah. And so, but what I love is when I have two days with people. But we love the Praxis Conference here at the Newsworthy Northworthy Podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's no, no, this is that. great. No, no, no. I'm not yeah, saying yeah. this isn't good. But I would, I prefer it when I have two full days mm -hmm. where it's, it's, it's relaxed and there's a smaller number of people and you get to know one another and, you know, you could just steer conversations are going to become just more leisurely and you, know. you can linger in them and go deeper so come next year okay when you get another one planned you're going to let me know i'm going to let all my listeners know 
and we're going to make it happen. All right. This All one, right. yeah, maybe we'll do a larger one this time. I, I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Well, you're going to have to keep me 100 posted. max. 100. You don't want to go oh, more no. than 100. No. Mm-hmm. I probably don't want to go more than 75. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. No. It'll be good, whatever you do. We'll try. Ian, it's a pleasure as always. Yeah, man. Thanks, for, <laughs> Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>